So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 12th chapter, the first three verses. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Pray with me. Our dear Lord, we're thankful for your word and for the instructions that you give us. And in this particular passage, the warning that you give us, uh, a warning of something that is devastating to our own walk with you, devastating to Christianity, devastating to any religion. And that is hypocrisy, especially our following of you that is so dependent on what's in our hearts and what goes on in our souls. And if we live one way in one venue and another in another, Lord, we know that that is what hypocrisy is. We pray your protection from that and your understanding as we make our way through this passage. We will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was reading a story the other day about a a Norwegian man who somehow, I don't know how he did it, didn't explain it, but somehow he made it through all of the security checkpoints in the airport and made it onto the airplane with a large amount of amphetamines stuffed down his trousers. And he was so proud of himself when he got on the plane that he went into the bathroom, took all the drugs out, held them up, and took a video of himself of talking about what a great score that he had made. And then he proceeded to post that video on social media so that all of his friends could see how clever he was. Well, unfortunately for him, it was not just his friends who were on social media paying attention. The police also saw the video. They found him. They arrested him. They convicted him and they sent him to jail. Now, I don't know about you, but a word comes to my mind when I see that kind of behavior. In fact, to me, that's just downright my wife told me never to use that word before our children, so I don't. So I'm just going to use another phrase. It's blindly absurd. It's crazy. It's idiotic to think that you're going to be able to commit a crime, place it on public media, spread it out to the entire world, and then get away with it. And yet, I am told that this is somewhat of an epidemic that people are doing this regularly with the Internet. But let me tell you something else that is blindly absurd. It is blindly absurd. It is idiotic for someone to believe in God, to have some inkling of the being of God, and then to think that he doesn't see all that you do. Then to think that what you do in private is actually private and what you do in the dark is actually in the dark. We read a passage just a little while ago in Psalm 139 where David says, there's no place that I can go on earth that you're not there. You are omnipresent. 
He's also omniscient. Jeremiah, God speaking through Jeremiah, puts it this way. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? There's no place that God is not. There's nothing that you do or that you think or that you intend that God is not aware of. And so, therefore, hypocrisy, which is founded on the fact that what I do in one venue is not going to show up in another venue, is idiotic. It is absolutely blindly absurd. And that's what Jesus is going to bring to our attention this morning and warn us about the dangers that that this kind of hypocrisy has to the church. Now, in, in, in our study of Luke, we've spent quite a bit of time now talking about the spiritual warfare that actually is going on. Um, we've talked about light and darkness, and we've talked about the cosmic initiative and Jesus coming to earth and, and, and bringing the light into the darkness and the way that the darkness has been fighting back. But one thing that we might not have noticed in the midst of all of this is it has been quite the discussion of hypocrisy. Jesus, in talking about the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes, has pointed out a double standard that they live by. In fact, going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 11, he was casting out demons. And these so-called religious leaders came up and accused him. They couldn't deny the miracles he was doing, but they accused him of working under the power of Satan. And, of course, Jesus showed how ridiculous that was. Later on, they invited him to a luncheon and they began to give him trouble. The fact that he wasn't following their traditions by washing his hands in a ceremonial way. And Jesus lambasted them with those woes where he pointed out their great hypocrisy and the way that they were doing one thing, creating all these laws and then finding loopholes where they didn't have to keep them. And then when Jesus left there last week, we saw where they began to plot against him. They, they held a grudge. They, they, they had it out for him. They were developing questions that were weaponized. They were creating nefarious ambushes to trip him up and hunting him down as if he were a criminal. And that brings us to what Jesus is getting ready to say to his disciples and, of course, through them to us this morning. So let's take a look at this text where he warns us, first of all, to be be careful and wary of the Pharisees. But before we do that, Luke is going to set the scene for us a little bit. So look there in the first verse. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first. Now, let me point something out. I don't know if any of you noticed that uh, in reading through this. These verses really don't belong in chapter 12. They actually belong in chapter 11. I mean, I want to remind you that these chapter and verses were not part of the original text. They were set later on. And Dr. Sproul of this particular passage says, sometimes I think that they were set by some itinerant preacher walking, running around on horseback trying to think up on how to, to, to make the divisions because it doesn't make any sense. So I'm going to teach this. We're going to look at this as if it were at the end of chapter 11, because that's really kind of where um, this belongs. But nonetheless, notice how Luke starts this out. In the meantime, that's a phrase that points to something that is going on simultaneously. So in other words, while the religious leaders are plotting and planning and scheming to destroy Jesus, Jesus goes on with his ministry. 
And obviously, he remains very popular in those days because we read that thousands of people were following him. Actually, the word that is used there for thousands is the word that we get our word myriad from. And actually, it literally means 10,000. You remember in Revelation where the angels were myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands to talk about an innumerable number. Well, so there's a big crowd following Jesus. Now, there seems to be a disconnect, doesn't there? The hatred of the religious leaders is not reflected in the way the crowds are still enthralled with Jesus. But I want you to notice that because in the midst of this chaos, Jesus turns to his disciples and he instructs them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, the anomaly that we have here is what happens to all these people. Literally, thousands upon thousands of people are following Jesus and yet he's going to die alone when he dies on the cross. Where did they all go? What, what happened to this enthusiasm? Well, one of the things that happened to the enthusiasm is the leaven of the Pharisees. They turned turned against him. And that's what Jesus is warning his church against. Be careful. There is something here that is dangerous that you need to make sure that you mark. Now, I want you to notice that even um, when when they were trampling on one another, by the way, um, that tends to happen when there's people who are sick and someone comes with a cure. We, we have, and I'll admit it, we've, you know, we've started a couple of riots in Haiti by showing up or not showing up with medical supplies because people who are sick and don't have access to a doctor, sometimes they lose their, 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 their manners when there's one there. And unfortunately, those who are not as sick trample all over those who are sick. And so the people want to get close to Jesus. They want to hear him. And particularly, they want to see his, his miracles. So they're trampling on each other. And in the midst of what seems like chaos, Jesus turns to his disciples. Now, that word first that is there can be seen in two different ways, depending on what it modifies. In other words, if he modifies disciples, well, that means that Jesus, knowing that the cross looms large, knowing that he only has a few months and he's going to be leaving and he has to prepare his disciples, that even though there's a huge crowd and even though there's chaos, he turns first to those disciples because those are the ones that he wants to teach primarily. But the word might also modify the leaven of the Pharisees. And if it modifies that word, then what what Luke is saying here is that first and foremost of the great evils, the great problems that would face these disciples as they go forward is going to be the particular hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the leaven that they are putting forward. So therefore, there's kind of a dual warning here. I tend to think that there's elements of both of those. Jesus is definitely interested in looking after his disciples. He's definitely interested that we uh, learn this, but he also is telling us this is no minor problem in the church. This is a major problem and we need to make sure that we take care of it and ferret it out, both within our churches and within ourselves. And that's what we are going to see. Well, with that sort of setting the scene, now we turn to the word of Jesus himself. Notice at the end of that first verse, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
That word beware is a warning, but it's a strong warning. And it is a warning in the Gospels that is almost exclusively used with hypocrisy, false teachings, false doctrines, false Christs, all of the, of the elements of falsehood, the evil that is sneaking in both to the hearts of Christians and into the church. Both of them, uh, all of them are included in this. It, it, it is a, a warning that speaks of the kind of religion that the Pharisees are putting forward. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And most of you know what leaven is. Most of you are familiar with that term because we still have leaven today. If you've ever had any sourdough bread, it's made with leaven. Now, leaven differs from yeast in the sense that both of them have the same effect. And yeast is in leaven, but yeast is just a, that's just the agent that interacts with the sugars in the dough to create gases. Leaven is yesterday or last week's dough, a little lump of that dough that has an active yeast culture in it at the time. So therefore, when you talk about leaven in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you're talking about something that the the people knew and, and dealt with every single day because this is the way that they maintained their cultures of yeast. But early on, the idea of leaven began to take on a negative context. It, it started to speak of, of things that were evil or bad. All the way back to Exodus uh, and the Passover, you Remember that when God told Moses about the Passover, he said that you're going to eat unleavened bread and for the next week you're going to eat unleavened bread. Now, that was both symbolic. It was symbolic of the fact that they were leaving and they're not going to have time to wait around for the dough to rise. But it also referred to the bitterness, the bondage, the slavery, the evil that they were under in Egypt. You're leaving that behind. And, and that was kind of brought about by the idea of leaven. Well, in the New Testament, leaven becomes uh, almost synonymous with sin, where where you, you talk about that which needs to be eliminated it is the leaven of sinfulness. Paul uh, talks about to the Corinthians, he says, your boasting is not good, talking about the sin of boasting. Do you not know that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump? So in other words, by the time of the New Testament, even though Jesus used this as an example of the kingdom, it is a metaphor to speak of the, the problem of a sinful nature, of some kind of sin that enters the, uh, uh, the, either the person or the church. Now, it's a perfect metaphor for the particular leaven of the Pharisees. We're going to talk about that in a moment, what, what it actually was. But it's a perfect metaphor for hypocrisy. Luke's not going to leave us hanging about what the leaven of the Pharisees is. He's going to tell us. But he's going to speak of that in the terms of hypocrisy. Now, the, there's two things about... There's two things, I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't know how to turn this crazy person off that talks to me from my watch. Dick Tracy would be proud, wouldn't he? Uh, but, but, but nonetheless, um, there are two reasons that I feel that leaven is such a, a, a good metaphor for hypocrisy. One, it changes the appearance of the dough. Any of you who've worked with dough, either making bread or even pizza crust, you know that when you add the water, maybe eggs to flour, and you knead it into dough, you end up with something that is very dense 
and, and elastic. Uh, and, and if you were to bake it like that, it's going to come out very flat. So in order to make it rise, you would introduce a leavening agent to it, some, some of the leaven, and mix it with the dough, and that would cause gas to uh, be released, which puffs up the bread, makes it something that it's not, and then when you bake it, it's nice and fluffy. So just the fact of the changing, of, of having two appearances based on the leaven is, is a good metaphor. But I think the main reason that Jesus uses this metaphor for is because it works in private. It works in the dark or under the covers, if you will. The way that it would normally work is a woman would create a, a new lump of dough and then intersperse the leaven with it, put it in a bowl, cover it with a towel, and leave it in the corner of the house for at least 24 hours. So the work of the leaven is done under the cover. It's done silently. It's done privately. It's done in a place where no one can see it. And this is what is presumed by the hypocrite, that their actions are. It's done in, 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 in private. It's done in the dark. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not. <laughs> it, it's not. It, it, you may think it is, but that's totally blindly absurd to think that you're going to get away with this um, hypocrisy. So the leaven is a good example. Now, I'm going to talk about the leaven of the Pharisees in a moment, but let's go into that next word, which is the word hypocrite. Now, most of you know where that word comes from. It comes from a secular source. The Greeks were really big on their dramas. They love, that's why they had all those amphitheaters. They loved to do dramas, but they, they didn't have any big screen TVs to show you up close. They didn't have any amplification. So one of the ways that they would tell you what that character was all about is the, the actors, and well, they were all actors in those days, would wear masks. And the mask would identify them as who they are. Well, that's the word hypocrite, those masks. You've seen those iconic masks that represent the theater today. Two masks, one with this overstated smile representing comedy and the overstated frown representing tragedy. Those are the, the, the masks of drama. Well, that's where the word comes from. Those are hypocrites, or a hypocritical mask. In fact, the whole idea of acting um, is, is a good example of what a hypocrite is or what hypocrisy is because a good actor or actress is capable of convincing you of their part no matter what they're playing. Now, there are a lot of actors who almost every time you see them, you see them as the same character. Uh, they, they don't switch. John Wayne would be a good example. Okay. He's always the tough guy. You very seldom see him cry on, on camera. Um, but there are certain actors that are so good that they convince you of whatever part they're playing. I think Dustin Hoffman is one of those actors. He can portray a mentally disabled person in The Rainmaker and turn right around and portray a woman in Tootsie and get away with it. He's believable in both of those parts. Or Sir Anthony Hopkins, I think, is another one of those really good actors. He can play a maniacal serial killer that spooks you out when you see him. And he can play a retiring butler in a, an English manner in The Remains of the Day. Or he can play a Norse god, Odin. And, and in each one of those parts, you believe that he is who he plays he is. That's a hypocrite. 
Okay, that's a consummate hypocrite. Now, we don't call our actors hypocrites because they're just doing their job. But that's what hypocrite is. And that's where the idea comes from. Now, when we take that idea out of the secular world and we bring it into the religious world, we bring it into its biblical connotations. What it means is to act like you're religious, to act pious, to act righteous on the outside but to be anything but on the inside. There's a huge difference between the outer person and the inner person when they talk about hypocrites or uh, that which is hypocrisy or hypocritical in the New Testament. Now, Jesus has been explaining to us, even though we haven't noticed it very carefully, he has been bringing to our attention in this part, Luke, of course, organizing the book, he's been telling us what hypocrisy looks like, what a religious hypocrite is like, and how devastating it can be to religion, especially Christian. A Christian religion is all based on what's on your heart. Well, the the hypocrite is all external. He's all on the outside. And that's the important aspect of when we see the leaven of the Pharisees, the way that the hypocrisy of the Pharisees varies from normal leaven or normal hypocrisy is that it is externalized, institutionalized religion. It is a religion that is on the outside rather than on the inside. It is a religion that is based about on deeds and things that you do and not who you are and what is in your heart. And we've had plenty of examples. Just go back to the end of the 10th chapter. Remember, Jesus is asked by a lawyer, well, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus prods him to answer. The lawyer correctly answers. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Man, he is right on. But then he says, so who's my neighbor? <laughs> who, who is my neighbor? I'm looking for a loophole out of here. I, I, I don't want to love everyone. And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the parable of the Good Samaritan highlights two religious leaders, a priest and a Levite, who are worshiping and leading worship in the temple. But yet, when the man is dying on the road, they go on the other side. They don't even want to get close to him because their religion is all external and it's not internal and they think no one sees. Of course, the Samaritan comes along and he's the one who has true religion. Because he looks after the man and cares for him, even though he's supposed to be an enemy. And so Jesus has been, has been bringing this to our attention. I mean, first of all, or second of all, there's that whole discussion of when Jesus was casting out demons and they accused Jesus of being, of doing it in, in the name of the devil. I mean, here they have the literal son of God who is authenticating himself by what he teaches and what he says and what he does. And they have the blasphemous gall to call him an agent of Satan. That's blind. But it is also absurd because they know who he is. They just don't want to admit who he is because it doesn't fall into their control or the way that they want things to be. And then, of course, when Jesus goes to that that house and 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 he, he tells them, he goes and explains in great detail what it actually means to be um, a hypocrite and what the leaven of that hypocrisy is. Because what he is pointing out is that the object of their worship is not God. They have made idols out of the temple 
and idols out of the law of Moses. We're studying uh, Stephen on Wednesday night. And we've got to the point where Stephen is actually giving what is called his temple polemic. And what he is doing is saying that, hey, listen, when Jesus was on uh, at the well with this Samaritan woman, he said it's neither on Mount Gerizim or on Zion that we are going to worship God. God is looking for people who are going to worship him in spirit and truth. And you don't need a temple in order to do that. You've made an idol out of it. You've made something that is institutionalized and you're not worshiping the source. You're not Worshiping God, that is one of the main giveaways of what it means to be um, a hypocrite. He went on and said, you, you, you honor the prophets, you build them tombs that your fathers killed because they didn't want, like what they were saying, what they were talking about. And now... Here they are. Jesus is out there telling his disciples to beware of their living and they're inside still plotting how to kill him. Now, they're going to go honor the tombs of the old prophets and they're, they're going to kill the prophet, the, the greatest prophet, the one that Moses talked about. So these are the, uh, are, are the trappings. These are the, um, uh, the externalized part of religion. They also uh, have a contrived morality. Jesus looked at the way that they were following uh, and, and how they were focusing on minors, majoring in minors and, and, and not paying attention to the greater things of the law. And, and he said to them, you Pharisees are spending all your time cleaning the outside of the cup, making it nice and shiny, but the inside is all filled with greed and uncleanness. You need to be careful about what is on the inside because, as he's getting ready to say, you think you're getting away with it. You think nobody's paying attention. Well, guess what, you fools? And that's Jesus' words, not mine. He says, you fools, did God not make the outside and the inside of the cup as well? Do you really think you're getting away with anything here? It is blindly absurd to be a hypocrite and say that you believe in God. He goes on and he talks about how they were tithing in the mint and herbs, but not looking after the greater things of the law. And Luke makes sure that we see that it wasn't just justice. It wasn't just the way you treat your fellow man. It's whether you love God or not. That is the great indicator of whether your religion is contrived or not. Who are you worshiping? Who's the object of your worship? How are you going about it? They were also involved with self-adulation, self-promotion. They loved the good seats in the synagogue. They loved to be extravagantly greeted in the marketplace. They loved anything that showed them to be important at the center of the religious world without a care in the world about whether or not they were being the ambassadors of God to the people, whether they were the mediators, whether they were the shepherds of the flock that God had given them. And so therefore they were consummate hypocrites in that sense. Another thing that showed out what hypocrisy was that Jesus went over is you're selective in your judgments. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, one of the primary ways that you can identify a hypocrite is to find someone who is judgmental. 
someone who looks down their long noses at other people from a position of self-righteousness and judge them because Jesus says that you're paying too much attention on the, the speck of sawdust in their eyes and not enough into the plank in your eyes. If you're not gauging yourself, if you're not judging yourself by the same set of standards that you're judging others, then that's a clear sign of hypocrisy. But I think probably one of the most poignant ways that Jesus right now is pointing out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And I think that it has a lot to do with what this, this leaven that he's talking about is, 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 is when they, when, when they suppress the truth. One thing about hypocrisy and hypocrites, brothers and sisters, is that they hate the truth. Because the truth exposes the darkness in their hearts. And so they do everything they can do to actually hide from the truth. I don't want the truth to come out. And the last thing on earth I want it to do is to shine on me because I have all of this wickedness in my heart. So therefore, I am going to suppress the truth. I'm going to try to hide the truth. And, 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 and I'm going to keep it from you because I don't want you to know the truth either. You have the key to knowledge, Jesus said. And yet you're, you're, you're depriving that knowledge, the knowledge of God from other people because you don't want them to know the truth because if they knew the truth about you, they would know that you were a hypocrite. They would know that you were a phony and they wouldn't listen to you and you would lose your power. And so therefore they're in the business of hiding the truth so that they can live and actually succeed in a lie. Well, the problem with hypocrisy, again, that Jesus is making clear, is that you think you're getting away with it, but you're not. And that's what he's going to say next in these next two verses. He's going to make it clear that both in the here and now and in the not yet, you're not going to get away with anything. Look in the second verse. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Nothing. What is that kind of word is nothing? It's an all-inclusive negative word. It means that there's nothing that is not included in nothing. Okay? If he says that nothing is going to be escape this, then nothing will escape it. It doesn't mean um, a part of it will escape. It doesn't mean this and that is going to be included. What he says is nothing. Whatever is covered, whatever you think is hidden from you will come to light. It will be revealed. Whatever is hidden will be exposed. Now, there's something about the grammar there that I, I want to show you. And, and, and it, it's not deep, but it is something that I think points some of these things out. Um, notice that Jesus says, um, when he starts out, he says, nothing is covered up. Now, that is a strange word. It is actually a participle, and a verb that is a participle in Greek has the connotation of something that is ongoing. But at the same time, it's in the perfect tense, which is something that is absolutely completed in the past. And it's also in the middle voice, which is also something that is kind of indefinite. So in other words, the way Jesus puts this, this is something that is done and completed in the past that continues to live, continues to have an impact on your life. And isn't that the way it is with all sin? We think that it's covered up, but like Edgar Allan Poe's telltale heart, it just kind of keeps on 
coming out and exposing itself. Well, none, nonetheless, it, it, it brings our attention to two things. There's this sort of strange in the past and ongoingness, but then there's the future. He, he says that there's nothing that has been covered up that will not be revealed. So he's bringing the tension that we find so often in Scripture between the here and now, in other words, the world that we live in, this this world, and the not yet, uh, an eternity that exists. And basically what Jesus is saying that if, if, if it's not one place, it's going to be the other. Uh, one of the two places, there is going to be a reckoning. Why is there going to be a reckoning in the, in the here and now? What can possibly happen if I do something in private that I... That that no one sees, how am I going to end up paying for that? Well, I'll remind you once again, brothers and sisters, that God is omnipresent. There's no place that God is not. And He's the only one you need to worry about. <laughs> because He's not just the one that can harm your body. He's the one that can send both body and soul to hell. So you really need to be concerned about whether or not you're, you're understanding that God sees all that you do. God is absolutely omnipresent as we read earlier in David, David saying, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of, of, of the morning into the middle of the sea, you're there. There's no place that I can go that you are not. And because of that, because of God's omnipresence, Hypocrisy is just blindly absurd. It just doesn't make any sense to think that you're going to get away with something that you simply will not. And so there is a a, a presence of God. God is also omniscient. That simply means that he knows everything. There is not one cubic millimeter in the cosmos whether it's this universe or dimensions, heaven or hell, wherever it is, there is not one cubic millimeter that God does not have intimate and complete knowledge of. He knows everything. When Jesus was teaching us how to pray, what did he say? He said, don't be like the pagans who think that they'll be heard for their many words. For your Father in heaven, what? Knows what you need before you even ask it. John tells us that Jesus, he didn't need anyone to tell him about men because he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Once again, I remind you what Jesus said to these Pharisees, you fools. God made the inside of the cup just like he made the outside of the cup. And if you clean the outside of the cup and you leave the inside of the cup hypocritical, God knows it. You're not getting away with anything. It just shows you that you don't know who to worship. That you don't know who's in charge. You don't know who's sovereign. And you really don't believe. Brothers and sisters, hypocrisy is unbelief. You can't believe in the God of the Bible and be a hypocrite thinking you're going to get away with things. Jesus makes that absolutely clear. Now, that's the here and now. The not yet, what's going to happen in the future, God, uh, Jesus makes very clear in the next verse. Look in verse 3. Therefore, whatever... Therefore, as a result of that, whatever, another all-inclusive word, there's no, in, there's, no, there's no segmentation of that. Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus uses light and dark here in a different way, doesn't he? 
We've been talking about light in the context of spiritual warfare and darkness. Jesus in the cosmic initiative brings the light of heaven and invades the darkness of earth and the earth fights back and the darkness fights back. But Jesus isn't using light and dark in that way here. He's talking about the things that we do that we think that no one sees. We like darkness when we do those things, when we transgress against God. We'd rather do it in the darkness because we think it's hidden. But that's not what we read in in, in David earlier, was it? Because David said, even the darkness is like light to you. There's nothing hidden from your eyes whatsoever. Once again, the tension between what has already happened and what will happen, what has happened in the past and what will happen. So everything that was in the dark, I don't care how long ago it was, will come to the light. Everything that you whisper in private rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. People whisper when they don't want others to hear them. It always kind of throws me off when I enter a room and everybody's whispering and as soon as I walk in, everybody shuts up. It could be perfectly innocent. I'm not saying, you know, you're doing anything, but it just kind of makes me think, okay, what were they talking about that they didn't want me to hear, you know? When we whisper, we don't want people to hear, or at least we want selected people to hear what we're saying. And, And the private room that is referred to here, it's a word that actually means storage room or storeroom. The larger houses in Palestine of those days would have a central room that had no windows and a very strong door. And that's the inner room or the private room or the storeroom where if they kept any of their valuables there in the house, that's where they would put it so that the thieves couldn't burrow in from the outside and be in the storeroom. So it was a place where you hid things, but it was also a place if you wanted to have a private conversation. If you wanted to talk about something and you didn't want the public to know, well, might, you might go into the private room and whisper it, thinking that no one hears that. Well, Jesus says that's not the case, because whatever you have whispered in those private rooms is going to be proclaimed from the housetop. And most of you know that in ancient Palestine, and in some places it's the same way today, the, the, the roof of the houses was flat. It was just another room in the house. They did all kinds of things up there. They did their laundry up there. They spent a lot of time up there because it was bright and airy. The problem is that so did your neighbors. And those houses are right next to each other. So your neighbor's a couple of feet away. And the people in the street are only a couple of feet beneath your feet. So this is not a place to have a big argument with your spouse. It's not a place to air your dirty laundry because you're broadcasting it to the whole village. That's what Jesus is saying. Whatever you think you whispered in the inner rooms that no one's going to know will be proclaimed from the housetops. It will be broadcast. Everything that you think is covered will indeed be brought to light. Um, These are some very powerful situations, both in the here and now and and the not yet. As I said earlier, and I made mention of it, the truth has a tendency to come out, doesn't it? Even though we want to hide it. Paul uses an example in 1 Corinthians talking about people trying to suppress the truth. Remember heretics, I'm sorry, hypocrites hate the truth. And the word is like trying to hold one of those big beach balls. Have you had a beach ball that big and tried to hold it underwater? 
it, it just doesn't want to go, does it? it you know, and it, you just keep pressing it down, and, and, and as soon as you let go, what happens? Boop. It pops right out. Sometimes that's what happens with the truth. No matter how deep you want to hide it, no matter how you want it to go away, how, no matter how you don't want anyone to know what you did, it just kind of comes out. And again, that classic story by Edgar Allan Poe, the telltale heart, where he, he buried a guy under his floorboards, but he could hear the heart all the time. It, it just kept coming up. So the truth, even in the here and now, has a way of finding its way out of the darkness. But I think also one of the ways that this manifests itself is just because of the nature of the individual, the nature of hypocrisy. In other words, Jesus told several of the parables where he made statements like this, each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the bramble bush. And sooner or later, the inner self, if it is so completely different from the outer self, a situation is going to come along, a circumstance is going to come along where that evil comes out. In fact, that's happening right now in this story. Because all these religious leaders that are so popular with the people and so prim and proper and so pious, they're behind closed doors right now plotting about how they're going to kill Jesus. And they're going to do it any way that they can. I could care less whether or not we have false witnesses. I could care less whether we stay up all night in a kangaroo court, which is against our laws. I could care less whether we're going to hand our brother over to the Romans to be crucified. We have to get rid of this man. Their, their, their nature comes out because of the circumstances. And, and, and that all takes place in the here and now. But brothers and sisters, unfortunately, that's not always the case. Quite often, people don't pay now for what they've done. Job Job had a hard time with this. And when you read Job, in several places, he would complain, how come is it that the wicked seem to prosper? And, and, and I'm sitting here suffering. And all these people who are living such wicked, contentious lives are just getting away with murder. And, they, and they're getting rich. And they're going on vacations. And they're buying bigger houses. And look at me. Here I am suffering from day to day. Why is it kind of like this? And, and, and so there's, there, there's this idea of, 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 of why the wicked get away with what they do. But Jesus is saying, no, they don't. There's, there's no getting away with anything. Everything, even if it is hidden now, will be revealed. Even if it's whispered now, it will be revealed. Even if they get away with it and everybody thinks they go to their grave happy, there is a judgment. This life is not all there is. And we will all stand in judgment. Brothers and sisters, if there is one thing that Scripture is crystal clear on, and if you're not familiar with Scripture and you think that it does not teach a judgment, you simply haven't read it. Hebrews puts it this way, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Paul wrote in Romans, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That means you and me, brothers and sisters. There's a common misconception that because we are Christians and because Jesus died for us, because he paid for our sins and we have his righteousness, that we are not going to stand before God in judgment. That is a misconception. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul says it to the second Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due 
for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, don't get me wrong. I just saw some big eyes there. As far as our judgment, we're not condemned, okay? Because Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sins. He walks forward and he says, listen, I paid for that sin. I hung on the cross and I'm intimately aware of each and every sin that that person has, 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 has brought to the table. And I paid for them. They are redeemed and it is my righteousness that surrounds them. And I'm telling you, my friend, if you do not have that righteousness, you stand before God condemned. But Christians will still be judged. We will still be judged. Probably the most graphic of the judgment pictures that we have is in the apocalyptic writing of the Revelation, where John sees this. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the thrones, and the books were opened." Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written or found in the, found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Scripture teaches us that there will be a judgment. Scripture teaches us that there is a place of punishment. And that is why hypocrisy is so blind. That is why it is so absurd. Because every idle thought, every idle word, every deed that you have ever committed will be brought under the judgment on that day. John talks about books. I see it a little differently. Uh, I've used this analogy before. Right now we're recording this and streaming it out over the internet. And that camera is doing it at 30 frames per second. Every second it takes 30 frames. And when you run that many frames together, it looks like fluid motion. That's how we get motion pictures. Well, the way I see the judgment is not necessarily as a book, but as a storyboard where all the frames of my life are spread out from the beginning to the end, every single one of them. And guess what? There's quite a few at 30 frames a second. 30 frames a second in one 24-hour period, I amassed 2,592,000 frames. That means every year of my life, I amass 946,728,000 frames. If I live to be 70, I will stand before God with 66,270,960,000 frames. And we will go through them one by one. And the thing about those frames that are different about our frames is that those frames don't just record the graphics. They don't just record what it sees. They record our thoughts and our intentions and our motivations and the circumstances of each and every decision and word that we say. What goes on in our mind and what goes in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, nothing is covered. All will be revealed. 
That's what scripture teaches. That's what Jesus is trying to get through to us. It is totally absurd to be a hypocrite. It is totally absurd to think that you're not going to be held accountable for the things that you do. That, my dear friends, is why you need a savior. You need a redeemer. You need someone to ransom you. You need someone to step out and say, I paid for that sin. I stand for that person. He or she is one of mine. There is no punishment for them. There is no condemnation for them because of what I did. Not because of what they did. Not because of what they know. Not because of the life that they live. Because of what I did and their faith in me and the mercy by which I have brought them out of the darkness that they were in. Brothers and sisters, you need Jesus. That's who you need. Now, as we step back from this text, which is, there are so many ways we can go with this, folks. I mean, we could be here for a week because this is so crucial. But I just want to, I I just kind of want to zoom in on one little aspect of it uh, as, as we look for an application here. First of all, I think that we just need to put things into its perspective, if you will. Jesus is warning us about a particular kind of hypocrisy and telling us that all will be revealed. And that hypocrisy is religious hypocrisy. Their hypocrisy is to is to have one idea on the outside, to have an externalized religion. That's what the leaven of the Pharisees is, an externalized religion. And so therefore, we need to look at this two ways. Jesus is warning us about hypocrites. And there are hypocrites, brothers and sisters. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. There are false teachers. There are false Christ. There are, and it surrounds us and inundates us in the church. So we need to beware. We need to know the truth. We need to be able to identify hypocrisy. But I also think that primarily he's talking to us, folks, because this is, this is a disease. That's why he uses leaven. It's something that creeps in the dark. And if you're not paying attention to it, it will make its way through the entire lump. It's like a cancer that that comes and it has to be eradicated. We're never going to lose our salvation, brothers and sisters. But I'm telling you what, we can fall into the same mindset of the hypocrite. And we have an enemy who is working 24 hours a day to try and do that to you. So I want to kind of look at... I, I apologize before I do this. Um, I want to pull out the mirror of Scripture. And I'm only going to use what Jesus says. And I want us to look at ourselves, each and every one of us. We Christianity is an introspective religion. And, 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 I, and I want to start off by being the first one to admit I'm a hypocrite. According to the strictest definition of the word I'm a hypocrite and I think we need all of us to look at ourselves and say to what degree am I a hypocrite because if you ever ever say one thing and do another you're a hypocrite Okay, so we need to really look at ourselves we need to pull this mirror out we need to ask ourselves first of all because the leaven of the Pharisees was that that externalized religion is our religion externalized Am I a religious hypocrite? And you say, I don't know. Am I? You know, how do I know if my religion is externalized? How do I know if I've institutionalized religion? Well, let me give you an acid test. Why are you here? Why did you come to this place this morning? 
Why are you sitting there after 40 or 45 minutes listening to me? What drives you? What motivates you? What are you searching for? What are you looking for? What do you define when you come to church? What are you coming for? Now, there's a lot of things that we come for when we come to church. They're all good, and I'm not going to say any of these are bad. But if we only come for these things, then we're missing the primary focus of why we should be here. Some people come for fellowship. We love each other. We're, we, we all have the same ideas and the same concept. We're, we're, we're Christians in the midst of a, a, of a brutal world. And so we love it when we come together. Some of you love the music and the way that Byron and Stacy pick out just the right songs. And, and you enjoy singing. It gives you a good feeling. And some of you like the liturgy, the way that we go through this. Others have been raised in a church. And this is just what you do on Sunday morning. You couldn't think of anything else that you would ever do on Sunday morning. Now, all of those things are good things, and I'm not saying that any of them should not be the reason that you come, but if those are the only reasons, then you have completely missed the reason that we are here, and your religion is externalized. We're here to worship God. We're here to love Him. We're here to glorify Him. And and, and, and that's why the first question and answer of the Westminster Confession of Faith says, what reason were you made? to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're here to worship. If you're not here to worship God, then you need to ask yourselves, why is that? Another sign of externalized religion that you can use as an acid test is what happens when you leave here. What happens when you walk through that door? Is this the only place that you really think about God? Is this the only place that you sing His praises? In other words, is your occupation Christian? Do you live your Christianity? Is your life one long sequence of worship? Do you go home and read your Bible? Do you spend time in prayer? Is Jesus important and central in your life? When you go to work, do you say that, no, 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 church is church and work is work. Business is business. Play is play. We're going to keep all these separate. Well, if you say that to yourself, then you have an externalized religion. Because God is omnipresent. He doesn't stop being the object of our worship when you walk out of this church. You need to be worshiping Him all the time. Third, acid test, I think, of whether or not your religion is externalized is, is, is to whom do you point for your salvation? When you talk about being saved and you consider what happens to you after you leave this world, we're all going to leave this world unless Jesus comes back before we do. Praise God. It would be wonderful if He did. But when you leave this world, why do you think that you're going to stand before God and He's going to welcome you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my blessing. Who's responsible for that? You? Something you did? The fact that you're here, the fact that you're religious, the fact that you do good deeds, the fact that you're better than your neighbor, the fact that you feel that you're righteous... None of those. If any of those are the reason that you feel that you will stand before God, anything except for the sacrifice of Christ, the atonement of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Ever. If you think anything else, then you're just fooling yourself. It's hypocrisy. And and it's the blind absurdity of hypocrisy. Well, We can go on and on. Is your morality relative? Do do you shake your head here when we talk about moral things and we talk about the pagan culture around us? And it's, yes, 
and then you go out and you indulge in the exact same immoral things that we're talking about? Do you recognize what immorality is according to the standard of God? When you gossip on the phone, do you understand that's slander? When you look at movies and pictures and pornography on the internet, do you realize that's adultery? When you covet what your neighbor has or you covet their lives, are, are you angry about the suffering that you go through? Do you not realize that that is a form of idolatry? If you are bitter and you speak bad and you hate somebody, do you realize that's a form of, of, of murder? I mean, I can go on and on. Do we understand or do we recognize the standard by which we will be judged? We will not be judged by our standards. We will be judged by God's standards. Are you ready for that? Is Jesus your Savior? Is He your Redeemer? Do you have His righteousness? If not, now is the time of salvation. Don't wait. Because you don't know whether Jesus is going to come back or not. The last two that I want to say are these. And and again, we could go way deep into this. And we could also go into the way this is not done in in, in most churches and most uh, denominations, most um, uh, doctrinal uh, statements today. But as I said earlier, one of the primary ways that you can identify hypocrisy in yourself is how judgmental are you? How strongly do you look down your noses and judge other people by a standard that you do not hold yourself to? This is literally the epitome of what it means to be a hypocrite. Because the, the lawyers were creating loopholes for themselves and, and, and they were looking down and they were causing heavy burdens on everyone else. That is a clear-cut sign of hypocrisy. And finally, it's just this. Brothers and sisters, do you love the truth? Do you love the Word? Do you love to spend time in it? You see, there's a difference. There's a difference. I'm going to tell you right up front, as I said, I'm a hypocrite. I, I, I understand that, and I accept it. But Christians are different in their hypocrisy. You know, if, if, if you don't know the Lord, you need Jesus because there is a judgment, and, and you need to turn to Him in and, and faith and belief and, and, and place your burdens upon Him, and He will forgive them. But for goodness sakes, brothers and sisters, if you are saved, if you are a Christian and you do wrong, which you always will do, don't try to cover it up. Don't try to hide it. You see, Christians, we do things differently. We actually want the light of truth to shine on our souls. Open that soul up and say, Lord, burn out the, the, the leaven in me. Burn out the yeast. Burn out every sin. I want to be exposed to that truth. I want to be exposed to your life. I want to bring it before you. I want to confess it. I want to repent. And I want your forgiveness. And then I want to walk away as if I'd never done that. Wrapped up in your righteousness. You see, that's what we do. We recognize our, our hypocrisy. We recognize that we fall short. And for goodness sakes, as a pastor, I'm the worst one here. Because I preach this every Sunday. And I don't always do what I preach. I like the way that Alistair Begg says it. He says, if you knew what goes into my mind, you wouldn't listen to me. And if I knew what was going on in your mind, I wouldn't preach to you. <laughs> and, and basically, that's the way it is. That, that you see, in Christians, it's not that we're not going to do wrong. It's not that we're not going to mess up. It's that we don't want to hide it. And if you start hiding what you do, if you start pushing it down, if you start trying to press it into the crevices, that is t- 
totally blind absurdity. Because your God knows what you do. And He's not sitting there with a lightning bolt waiting to strike you. He wants you to come to Him as a child. And He says, I love you and I sent my Son down there to pay the penalty for your sins. Don't carry that around. Confess it. It's forgiven. Go your way. That's Christianity, brothers and sisters. I want to leave you with these words. I love them. They're some of the most comforting words. And I think it is just what Jesus wants us to do from the book of Matthew. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus says his yoke is easy, he's not saying that, no, you don't, I don't care whether you're obedient or not. No, he just says that obedience is the best way for you to live. A righteous life, a Christian life, is the best life that a human being on this planet can live. So the yoke is easy and the burden is light. It's not light because you're never going to have any burdens. It's light because you take it to the foot of the cross and you place it there and he takes it from you. It's light because he's carrying it, not because you do it. Brothers and sisters, that is what we do as Christians. That's how we combat hypocrisy. That's how we keep the leaven of the Pharisees out of our lives and out of our church. The alternative is simply the blind absurdity of hypocrisy. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, I I just thank you that you loved us enough not only to pay the penalty for our sins, but to instruct us how the enemy is going to attack us. And you told us what's dangerous in the church, what's dangerous in our lives. And you've told us to beware of these things. And I thank you that they're not left a mystery for us. All we have to do is pick up the book and read it. And you guide us and direct us. Uh, Lord, we give you the glory. But Lord, when I read passages like this and when I think about things like this, there's one thing I do know. Yes, we will all stand before you in judgment. But I wish that we could have the appreciation for what Jesus has done for us and what you, our Father, uh, ordained in him. I wish we could have that appreciation and love and obedience now rather than when we go through that judgment. We will enter heaven in complete appreciation and thankfulness for what Jesus did for us. May we have that now in every day of our lives. May we recognize just how foolish it is not to come to you and to give you our burdens. We give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen.